0: Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for everything that you've given us, uh, for giving us life and breath, for giving us all the opportunity to be here this morning to worship alongside other believers. We thank you most importantly for your word, God. Thank you for how amazing and how beautiful the words are that are in your word and how holy they are. I pray this morning, God, that as we study your word, um, that you would block out all distractions and help us to put our 100% focus right on you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, if you'd like to start turning there. Most of you know that before I had the privilege of coming to Emmanuel, um, I worked as a land surveyor. For those of you who don't know what a land surveyor does, which, by the way, before the day I went in for my interview, I also had no idea what a land surveyor did. Um, But what they do, basically, they go around, they find property corners. They uh, put marks in the ground where corners of buildings go, all that kind of stuff, to make sure that buildings are being built in the correct way. Um, So the day I went in for my interview, um, they were asking me all kinds of questions. And one of the questions they asked me was whether or not I consider myself to be strong. Um, Now, I thought I'm not... I'm definitely not a bodybuilder, um, but I'm not. I'm not weak. I can. I can kind of hold my own with lifting heavy things. So I replied, "Yeah, I, I'm strong." And they told me that was an important part of the job because uh, I'd often be carrying heavy equipment around. So my first day comes. And it's the middle of January. It was no warmer than like 10 degrees outside. And the first thing that my supervisor asked me to do was to carry this gigantic machine and this tripod on my shoulder out to the middle of a field. Well, it did not take very long for me to realize that my definition of being was being strong was different from their definition of being strong. Um, So I struggled my way out to the middle of the field, but I realized that if I was going to be doing that multiple times a day for for the foreseeable future, that um, I would need to get a lot stronger. So this morning we're going to talk uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about being strong in a different type of way. We're going to be talking about being strong in the grace of Christ. So read with me uh, there in verse 1. It says, You then, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Last week, we noted the close relationship that Paul and Timothy shared, how he, how he calls him his son, his son in the faith. Um, Paul was a mentor to Timothy. That's why you often refer to him as a son in the faith. And here, Paul urges Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at a few specific ways that Paul urged Timothy and that he urges us to be strong in the grace of Christ. But first, let's look at how Paul explains this grace that he's referring to. So skip down with me, starting in verse 8. It says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is urging Timothy to remember Jesus and to remember how he lived his life, his miracles, his preaching, and the life that he lived without sin. And to remember that not only did Jesus die on the cross, but he was resurrected from the dead. Paul proclaims that this is the gospel. And before Paul encountered Jesus on his way to Damascus, he was completely opposed to Christ. He was a sinner that rejected the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, and he spent his life hunting down followers of Christ, And throwing them in jail. But when he encountered Jesus, he decided to let go of his sinful desires and begin living for Christ. Everything about Paul's life changed because of this gospel, because of what Jesus did for him. And Paul's appeal to us to remember Christ is a reminder to us that Jesus did what Jesus did for us by saving us from our sinful nature, redeeming us for a life lived for the glory of God and one that will be lived for eternity in the presence of God. This is the reason that Paul endured so much suffering throughout his ministry. And not only did Paul endure that suffering, but he did so willingly. It says in verse 10 that he endures everything for the sake of the elect, meaning that he was willing to go through any pain imaginable if it meant that the gospel would be shared and that men and women would believe in Jesus as Messiah and trust in him with their lives. So Paul in this chapter is urging us to live out our faith in a way that honors God and that honors that sacrifice that Christ made for us. By telling us to remember Christ and to recall the gospel, Paul wants us to think about that salvation that each one of us have been given. He wants us to remember our lives before Christ and to reflect on all that Christ has done for us. Continue reading with me down in verse 11. It says, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him we endure we will also reign with him if we disown him he will also disown us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself in verse one Paul urges us to be strong in the grace of Christ and in the previous verses we saw the first part of that grace which is the gospel and here we see the second part of that grace which is the enduring salvation that we've been given if your hope for salvation rests upon Christ alone then your salvation is secure each of these phrases that Paul uses in verses 11 through 13 are, are really amazing in each of their own way. Um, so I want to look at them individually. And they are, they're each conditional statements, so there's an if statement, and then there is a promised result if that condition is met. So the first one says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. That means that if you've put to death your flesh and put your hope in Christ, then you are promised to have salvation. You are promised to have life in Christ. It's not just something that we have a chance to obtain, it's a promised result. The second says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. That means that if we endure the trials and temptations of life, then we are promised to reign with Christ for eternity. It's an amazing statement, and it's one that should fill us with great joy. Those who faithfully live out their lives for Christ are guaranteed that they will reign with Christ. But at the same time, it should serve as a warning to us that we must endure the trials and temptations of life and remain faithful to God if we desire to live with him for eternity. And this brings us to the third statement. If we disown him, he will also disown us. God will not force us to live for him. It's a choice that each of us must make. And if we choose to reject him, then he will not call us his own. If we reject Christ, then we will not reign with him for eternity. There's no all roads lead to heaven theology in the Bible. There's one path to salvation, and that is through faith in Christ. If we reject Christ, then he will reject us. The final statement says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. God has promised salvation to all who have genuine faith in Christ. If we're without faith, God remains faithful to his promise that he will not extend salvation to those who do not have faith. Doing so would be to disown himself because what he has promised. If everyone received salvation regardless of their faith in Christ, then there would have been no point in God sending Christ to live, preach, and die here on this world for our sin. And if God gave salvation to those without faith, then he would be a liar for saying that only those who trust in Christ will be saved. It's for this reason that Paul urges us to be strong in the grace of Christ. We've been saved from our sin And our lives need to reflect that. And our commitment to Christ as Lord must remain firm throughout our lives. Because salvation is only promised to those who choose Christ and continue to live out their lives for him. In the rest of this chapter, we're going to be seeing some specific ways that Paul points out as essential for us in this pursuit of being strong in the grace of Christ. Read with me, starting in verse 1. You then, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will also be qualified to teach others. Last week, we talked about the importance of diligently and intentionally teaching others about God, whether it be through a discipleship or a mentor relationship or through teaching those in our family And here Paul continues to a third way that it is essential to teach, and that is through entrusting faithful men who will be qualified to teach others. That's something that we can see evidence in our church. Pastor Andrew has entrusted others to share in the work of teaching the gospel, whether it be the elders, the Sunday school teachers, or Wednesday night discipleship teachers. There are a number of faithful believers who have been equipped and have been entrusted with sharing in the work of teaching the gospel. And this is vital to the life of the church, that the gospel is entrusted to faithful men who will faithfully teach others. The definition of a faithful man can be seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in the book of Titus chapter 1. Some of the qualifications include being above reproach, being self-controlled, being a lover of good. And men, that's something that each of us should strive towards. We should all desire to be qualified as faithful men that can be entrusted with teaching the gospel. Continue reading with me in verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Paul urges us to join with him in suffering for the gospel, and he gives three examples of how we should go about doing so. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. This appeal to join with him in suffering is not focused on physical suffering. Instead, what Paul is focused on is suffering in the sense of denying our fleshly, sinful desires for the sake of living a life that will glorify God. This idea can be seen in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 9, verse 27, where Paul says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. What Paul is saying is that we as Christians need to be willing to set aside any sinful desires for the sake of our relationship with Christ. It's not enough to just believe the right things about God and to have correct theology, but we also must live out our faith in a way that mirrors the life of Christ. The first example that Paul gives is that of a soldier. In verse 4, where he says, A soldier, or he says, sorry, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. A soldier who's called into battle leaves everything behind. He leaves his home, his job, his family, everything. He leaves it all behind, and he takes up a new life as a soldier whose sole purpose is to accomplish the task set before him by his commanding officer. He no longer has the privilege of caring about things that seem important in civilian life, like family and hobbies. His life belongs to the military, and he lives to accomplish whatever task is given to him. And that analogy here to the Christian life is so powerful. As Christians, when we put our faith in Christ, we're not simply adding salvation to our life to go along with all the other things that define us. Instead, we are just as the soldier who's been called into battle. As Christians, we leave behind our old lives and we take up a new life as a follower of Christ. The suffering that Paul urges us to join in with him here is that of denying our desire to take part in the things of the world. As followers of Christ, we must deny the temptation to live in the comfort of the things of the world. And most importantly, we must not allow that comfort to get in the way of our mission, which is to share the gospel to those around us. God did not give each of us our life's breath so that we can live our lives in ease and comfort. He gave us life so that we can declare that Jesus is the Messiah to those around us. By relating the Christian life to that of a soldier, Paul is urging us to join with him in suffering by denying our desire to allow the comforts of the world to get in the way of our responsibility to share the gospel. The second example that Paul gives is that of an athlete. We see that in verse 5, where it says, Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. I'm sure most of you have spent some time watching the Olympics. Emily and I try to watch as much as we can when, when they're on, both the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics. In the winter, we love watching the snowboarding and the skiing. And in the summer, we really like watching the track and field events, especially the 100-meter race. One of the most heartbreaking things when watching that race is the rare event when someone false starts. Now, a false starts when a runner begins their sprint before the gun is fired. And when they do, the race is stopped. Everyone goes back to the starting line. But that runner that did the false start, they're disqualified. There's no second chance. One false start, and they're out. All of that training and work of qualifying for the Olympics is thrown out the window in a split second because they didn't race according to the rules. As followers of Christ, we've been given instructions on how we must live out our faith. And by making this comparison, Paul shows us the importance of living out our faith in a way that is consistent with what is taught in the Bible. The Bible is clear that salvation comes through Christ alone. So if we put our faith in anything else to save us, we will be disqualified. If we claim to have faith in Christ but continue to live in sin, we will be disqualified. If we desire to receive the victor's crown of salvation, then we must trust fully in Christ and live out our salvation in a way that is consistent with Scripture. Paul calls us to suffer as an athlete by making whatever sacrifices are necessary to live out our salvation in a way consistent with Scripture. A third example that Paul uses comes from verse 6, which says, "...the hard-working farmer... Should be the first to receive a share of the crops. It's an analogy that I probably don't have as much work to do in explaining because of the rural setting we live here on the Eastern Shore. Even our uh, church property has a gigantic field in the back, so I'm sure all of us know or or is related to someone who is a farmer. I personally grew up on a farm, and that might come as a surprise to some of you because I don't wear cowboy hats or listen to country music or say y'all. Um, It's true, though, that I did grow up on a farm, and this afforded me the opportunity growing up to see the hard work that it takes to maintain a farm and to properly grow crops. For many years, I saw how my dad would tirelessly work until the sun went down, and and even later, out in the fields, plowing, planting, spraying, doing all the things necessary to make sure that his crops were well taken care of. And what Paul is communicating here by making the comparison of the Christian life to a hard-working farmer is that of evangelism and discipleship. Paul is urging us here to have that same hard-working attitude that a farmer must have as we work hard in our efforts to share the gospel and to teach other believers about God. And that work is not easy. There are many challenges in discipleship and gospel sharing. I have many stories about, time, about times when I've been uh, taking time out of out of my schedule to read the Bible weekly with someone over a long period of time, only to have them get frustrated with the fact that, as one guy told me in college, I talk about Jesus too much. Uh, The work of evangelism and discipleship is not easy, and it's not always visually fruitful. But it is a work that we as Christians have all been called to, and one that we need to be faithful to, regardless of whether or not we can visually see results. And just as the farmer's hard work plowing, planting, spraying and nurturing crops does not guarantee that rain will come, and that the crops will grow. Sharing the gospel and meeting regularly with someone to teach them the truths of the Bible does not guarantee salvation or guarantee spiritual growth in that person's life. But our responsibility is to give ourselves fully to the work of evangelism and discipleship while understanding that it is God who gives faith and causes growth in the life of a believer. Paul calls us to suffer through this hard work of evangelism and discipleship for the salvation of those whom we've been called as Christians to minister to. So we can be strong in the grace of Christ by entrusting the gospel to faithful men, by joining and suffering for the gospel in these ways, and by turning from wickedness. Read with me starting in verse 19. We're, We're going to be jumping forward a little bit. Says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and of silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the Master, and prepared to do any good work the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In the original language, the word used in verse 20, it's translated here as articles or as vessels in some translations. It's very general, but it's often used to describe different tools, utensils, and furniture that would be found in a home. And it's believed here that Paul's referring to utensils or serving dishes when he uses that word. So Paul's making a distinction here between those gold and silver plates that are fancy and elegant and the common wooden and clay ones that aren't aren't very special. He's comparing it to our relationship with the world as followers of Christ. As Christians, we've been called to be holy and to be set apart from the world. As Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says, we've been set apart as holy. Because of this, our lives should reflect the life of Christ, not the life of sin that we lived in before we received salvation. Verse 21 says that those who want to be instruments for special purposes must cleanse themselves from the common uses. In other words, we need to examine our lives and where there is sin, we need to seek forgiveness and follow with repentance, striving to honor God in all that we do and not being content to allow any sin to remain in our lives. Verse 19 reflects this as it says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And in verse 22, it says to flee the evil desires of youth. These verses do not tell us to only run away from the wicked things or the evil desires that we want to turn away from. These verses command us to turn away from all wickedness and all evil desires. As Christians, we should not be tolerant of any sin remaining in our lives. When we recognize sin in our lives, we need to repent and strive to honor God in that area of our life moving forward. Furthermore, as we see in verse 22, we are called not only to flee evil, but also to pursue that which is good. Specifically, we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. These four things should mark our lives as followers of Christ. And if they do, verse 21 says that we will be made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. We can be strong in the grace of Christ by entrusting the gospel to faithful men, by joining in suffering for the gospel, by turning from wickedness, and lastly, by correctly handling the word of God. Look back with me to verse 14, and as we read, we'll be reading verses 14 to 19, and then we'll be jumping down to verses 23 through 29. So after verse 19, we'll jump right into verse 23. So starting in verse 14, it says, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And now skipping down to verse 23. It says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be instructed gently in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The key verse in this section, was a lot of verses that we read, but the key verse is verse 15 where it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. What Paul's explaining here is the importance of us being confident in our knowledge of the Bible. To not be ashamed and to correctly handle the Bible means that we need to be diligently reading and studying the Bible in a correct way. That means that, as we discussed last week, we read and interpret the Bible literally. We take every word as the Word of God. And it means that we open our Bibles and take the time to read it and understand it every day. Our Bibles are not only to be open on Sundays... If that's the only day of the week that we're studying God's word, then we're not handling God's word correctly. And part of why we need to be studying the word so diligently is so that when we encounter false teachings, we'll be able to recognize them and guard ourselves against them. In these verses, we see Paul make reference to Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were false teachers. And the instruction that we see here are given for the purpose of protecting us from false teaching and the sin that it can cause. In verses 14 and 23, we see that it's wise to refrain from getting into arguments with those who believe false things about God. Instead of engaging false beliefs in an argumentative way, we should speak the truth about God in love and in patience. And we do that because, as verse 24 reminds us, the goal when dealing with a false teacher or someone that believes something false about God is that they'll repent and be saved. The goal is not to win an argument. We read earlier about the importance of trusting the teaching of the Bible to reliable men, and we see in verses 17 and 18 what happens when ungodly men are allowed to teach and have influence. Those false teachers corrupted those who listened to their teaching, and that is why, as Christians, we should avoid the teachings of those who do not properly handle the responsibility of teaching the Bible. In this example, Paul warned that the false teaching was spreading like gangrene. Gangrene is a disease that spreads very fast and in a deadly way. And Paul uses it here as a metaphor to convey to us how quickly false teaching can spread and how those who follow it become consumed by it. And that ultimately leads to spiritual death. We should not tolerate false teaching and we should not listen to false teachers. But in order for us to identify false teaching, we need to be faithfully reading and studying the Bible. It's easy to be deceived when we're not grounded in the word of God. But when we are grounded, we can easily identify those who are teaching falsely. As men and women who seek to honor God with our lives, we must be strong in the grace of Christ. And what that means is that first, as a church, we need to make sure that we are continuing to entrust the teaching of the Bible to reliable men. And individually, we need to be taking the time to share the gospel with those around us and to disciple those whom God has given us the opportunity. It also means that we need to be willing to suffer for the gospel by not being distracted by the things of the world like the soldier, by making whatever sacrifices are necessary to live out our salvation in a way consistent with scripture like the athlete, and by suffering through the hard work of teaching others about Christ like the farmer. Thirdly, we need to avoid wickedness. We've been set apart for Christ and we need to strive to live holy lives that honor the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And finally, we need to correctly handle the word of God so that we can be prepared when we encounter false teaching. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how clear your word is. God, we thank you so much for the salvation that you offer through your gospel. And I pray, God, for anyone here who who has not accepted your gospel, who has not decided to live for you. I pray, God, that their eyes would be opened uh, to how amazing that gift is of salvation and how undeserving we all are of that gift. And I pray, God, for those that do have that salvation, that we will be strong in your grace, that we would be willing to uh, let go of anything in our lives that is hindering our responsibility to share your gospel with this world. I pray, God, that as we go out this week, that we would be faithful to share your gospel with the world and that we would be faithful to live our lives in a holy way. And I pray this in your name. Amen. (laughs)